I'm Yonit Levy in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland in London. And Jonathan, you are a columnist for The Guardian. And you, Yonit, are the anchor of Israel's Channel 12 News. And we are Unholy from Keshet Podcasts. Two Jews talking about what's going on in the news. That's what we're doing each week. And I don't know, is it week 758 of lockdown? It, it's big. It's, I have to say, it's <laughs> feeling like that here. I don't know about you. I, I, I could, I, I could uh, report on, uh, on a bit of um, lockdown fatigue. Yes, if I see one more episode of Peter Rabbit... Let's just say when I look at you, Jonathan, I wonder why you don't have longer ears and fur. I mean, you seem like a very strange rabbit to me, is all I can say. <laughs> I mean, lockdown with young children like you have is a different, you know, kind, and frankly, I think more challenging than lockdown with teenage boys, which is what uh, I'm grappling with here. It all The, the clock is the thing, the big casualty. Time <laughs> is, is doing bizarre and strange things so that, you know, my 19-year-old thinks nothing of sort of beginning guitar practice he's learning the guitar at you know 1 30 a.m so all the hours are just upside down you know you can hear people going in and out of zoom classes for school and you'll you check your watch is it day is it night i you know the clock is just upside down now <laughs> I, I keep thinking about like in first lockdown you were like uh well i'll teach you about neil armstrong and we'll build spaceships from recycled paper and like second lockdown it's uh you know we'll talk about amelia Earhart and we'll bla- build planes from uh, toilet paper rolls and third lockdown it's just like watch television leave me alone <laughs> be like a normal kid watch to watch be on playstation from morning till night exactly. why can't you do that no, I mean, nocturnal living, that was the thing when we, there was no homeschooling. Genuinely, I did think that, you know, my younger son was going to become a nocturnal creature and that there would be kind of, you know, nature documentaries made about him. <laughs> um, and that, that changed with the online learning, but the but not completely. And so, yeah, it, it, we, we've now got to that stage where just watching TV together counts as like wholesome family activities you know when in the old days they said we used to make our own entertainment you know as if we were setting up our own little chamber quartet of musicians you know it's begun it's now seems noble and wholesome if we just sit the four of us you know crutzing in front of the tv that counts (laughs) now as wholesome family time I remember I saw, once saw a documentary of Pablo Escobar that uh, cheated while playing with his uh, family Monopoly. He would hide the money under the board. <laughs> and I could just tell you, after three lockdowns, I really, I can really identify with Pablo Escobar. On that, on that point, of course. Yeah. Not on, on, on other points. Um, so uh, from, from struggling parents, we want to uh, talk uh, about, uh, well, we have a lot to talk about this week, but, but we'll begin uh, by talking wi- about uh, Israeli politics. We are 53 days uh, before the elections, yet another uh, cycle of elections. Talking of wholesome, and, um, noble activity. Exactly. Or about the world's toughest uh, uh, jobs. And I think being the head of the Labour Party in Israel definitely uh, uh, constitutes as one of them. Um, so this week, Merav Micheli was elected leader of the Israeli Labour Party, Ha'avodah, as it's called in, uh, in Hebrew, which kind of begs you to uh, think that you need to give her congratulations and condolences at the same time, right? It's like, great, you won. Now hit the light switch and get out because you're the only one left in the room, right? So, so we kind of have to talk a little bit about the situation of the party that is, of course, an in- incarnation of the Mapai party, the party that, that established Israel and ruled it for almost 30 years, and, of course, of the Avodah in its height, which, was, which had 44 seats in, 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 in the Knesset. So this was a, a major party in Israel. 
Uh, and now it is dangling somewhere uh, on the electoral uh, threshold. Um, and, and before we talk about why, I will say a few a few words about Mirav. Mirav is a, a former media personality. By the way, when Bibi says it's him, me against the media, actually, when you look at it, it's kind of true. I mean, Lapid was on television. <laughs> Mirav Michaeli was on television. Nitzan Horowitz from Meretz was on television. Um, and Gidon Saar, as I told you a week or two ago, was our was our network's first legal uh, affairs analyst. So yes, it so, really is so Bibi against the media. So just by a law media. of averages, by a law of averages, Yoni, Don't you will go be there. leading. Don't go there. A political party, what, five years from now, one year from now? It's just, it's a matter of scientific I, I, inevitability. I will be, you're right. I will be leading a political party in Never Never Land. <laughs> the Peter <laughs> because, Rabbit Party. Exactly, the Peter Rabbit Party, me, Lily, and Benjamin. <laughs> but never mind. Got back to Mirab Michaeli. She was a media personality. She's an advocate of women's rights. She's a feminist. She has she had a very prominent feminist voice in Israeli uh, uh, public arena. I was when I was preparing these notes for this our conversation. I stumbled upon a lecture she gave uh, in a version of TED in Israel, and it, the the uh, headline was "Cancel Marriage." Marriage, that holy matrimony. That mystical union that brings us together to heaven to hold for better for worse, in sickness and in health till death do us part. We must cancel marriage. <laughs> not only religious marriage, marriage is not an issue of religion. Also civil marriage. I want all secular states to totally eliminate. All registration and regulation of marriage. I want to cancel the very concept of marriage. It, it's a, it's an interesting lecture. I actually uh, found myself, you know, listening to her, and she's very compelling, and she knows how to talk. And it's in English, by the way, if you want to listen. And then uh, after hearing it for about ten minutes, I was like, okay, one decade and one husband uh, later, it's a bit too late for this. <laughs> uh, but it's an interesting. She's she's she advocates for that as well. So. Again, what we're trying to ask here is what happens to labor, right? When we look at, there's a very interesting index I always look at, which is the Institute for Israeli Democracy. And it asks Israelis what they would define themselves as being. So in 1995, 35% of Israelis said they are leftists. And 29% said they were uh, from the right. And, and 28% said they were centrists. Now, Fast forward to 2020, 13% of Israelis, a mere 13% said they would define themselves as leftists, and 56% said they were on the right side of the map. Um, and it, it kind of begs the question, so what happened? Why in Israel today would someone say that they're leftists? And they'd say it's sotto voce, right? We're from the left, but it will say it very quietly. To the extent that when you look at the first... Um, election between Benny Gantz and Benjamin Netanyahu, right? 2019 April. Netanyahu's slogan was Yamin Chazak in Hebrew. That means uh, strong right. Always has to be strong, right? And, the, and Benny Gantz's slogan was En Yamin V'smol Yisrael Akol. It rhymes, but it also means no left, no right. Israel is the most important thing. So you have one side saying... No red saying, states, I'm no ver- blue states, exactly. just the United, United States. States. But what does it mean? It means that there is one side that says... I'm proud of being what I am. I'm proud of being on the right. But the other side is saying, ah, forget left and right. Right? So that means that the other side is ashamed of what they really are. 
This is this is where we are in Israel today. Yeah, I think that has huge resonance outside Israel, actually. I mean, the that shift, um, so that only 13%, and by the way, was that just Jewish Israelis or was that? Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's a, yes. that's a really telling number. Uh, there have been, that you can pick up similar shifts uh, elsewhere around the world where, you know, to, to be identified on the left somehow was to be, uh, you know, at odds with the national nationalism sort of project. Uh, mm -hmm. So you can see that. I think the, the Labour thing is fascinating for people outside Israel for this reason, which is that in Britain especially, the, the, the point of contact for many people in British politics was the Israeli Labour Party. And I'm talking about people in the British Labour Party. They could feel a connection that somehow that was their sister party um, and that, you know, just the the fact that the clue was in the name, right? There were two parties with the same name. But that was it, 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 not as superficial as that. It went deeper than that in this way, which is, let's say you were a British or European kind of liberal who, you know, supportive of the idea of Israel and its right to exist, but were worried by the direction Israel had taken in recent years, and let's face it, decades, basically since 1967 and uh, the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, it was really comfortable if you could say, like that first survey, you know, you said where it was 35% of Israel identify on the left, you could say, we may dislike the current government of Israel, but we identify with this stream in Israeli life, the Israeli Labour Party. Mm -hmm. And so it meant it was very easy. It was a kind of uh, easy sort of dance move you had to make to say, okay, whatever's going on in Israel, but we identify with this tradition, with this stream. And, you know, you could all... So, for example, in 1982, when I was, you know, at, at school, there was controversy about the Sabra and Shatila massacres in Lebanon, obviously committed by uh, phalangist, Christian phalangist militias, but Israel, the defense minister at the time, Ariel Sharon, held uh, responsible by an Israeli inquiry, etc. 400,000 Israelis went on the streets of Tel Aviv to protest. People outside Israel could say, that's who we identify with. We're not anti-Israel, we identify with them. And Labour was the kind of vessel for that. Mm -hmm. So to read now that the party that Merav Mikhaeli now leads may not even clear the threshold to get into the next Knesset, and you know, I know that it may just squeak in, but the fact that's even a question isn't just a big historic shift, you know, the party that founded Israel. It means it's quite difficult for people who want to be pro-Israel without being pro-Israeli government. Where who do they root for? Who do they identify with now? But I, I don't want to. I don't want to ruin the theory. But I, <laughs> I don't think that the idea. <laughs> you, you built it up so beautifully. But I, I don't think that the ideas are dead, or that there aren't people who follow it. There's a difference between saying I don't want to identify as being leftist but I believe in certain values. Maybe I don't want to call them that way. Maybe I don't vote for Labour. By the way, there are a lot of other, maybe too many parties on that part of the political uh, spectrum in Israel, right? There's Yashatid and there's Unchurdai and there's the Labour Party and, there, and Meretz, of course. So I don't think the ideas are dead. I don't think if you're, if you're uh, uh, looking to identify with certain ideas, they still exist. Um, and, and it just means that after you, you you know what happened, you know, if we have to sort of cram 25 years of Israeli history in, in two minutes. But obviously what happened to Israeli society was that two attempts 
to bring peace, right? In 1993, the Oslo Accords, 2000, Camp David with Ehud Barak and, and, and uh, trying to make uh, peace again. And both instances, after Oslo with uh, Rabin and, and Peres and Barak, both instances uh, led to uh, this literally blowing up in, in the Israeli public's face, right? With dark uh, years of terror attacks against Israelis. So Israelis felt like, and again, to, to the extent that I can represent the mainstream opinion was, wait a minute, if this is what you're trying to sell us, right? If you're trying to sell us peace and what we get is bomb blasts and, and, and cafes and buses and in shops, we don't want to buy this anymore. Um, and so the whole idea of the the what the left stands for, and you mentioned 1982, it, standed, it could stand for anti-war and then peace, turned into something that is a harder commodity to sell. It, be, it, begins, it becomes even a harder commodity to sell if Netanyahu suddenly is the person who says, wait a minute, I'm the peacemaker, right? I took this, I made the deals with the UAE and with Bahrain and with Sudan and with, with Morocco. Of course, no blood was shed between Israel and any of those countries. But, but the point is, and it's more difficult to make Palestinian peace with the Palestinians and with Jordan and with Egypt, but the point is that he has now taken the main flag that the left was holding uh, and, and made it his own. So that made it even more difficult for for the left. But it is important to remember that there are still a lot of people in this country that hold these uh, that, that hold the idea of the Palestinian uh, and the Israeli state and the Palestinian state as an idea that they would want to see happen one day. Of course, it isn't on the agenda in that it's, it, you know, I know that must be shocking for people listening from outside Israel. It, it isn't urgently on the agenda right now in these elections because uh, it, even Tony Blinken said, you know, this is not a near this is not something we see in the near future, right? Yes. A deal now, or, a, or anything like that. I think that, that that's all makes sense completely. I think the two-state solution as an idea plays a similar role, actually, for particularly for liberal Jews outside Israel, which is it's that position, which even if it isn't about to happen, it just in theory holds uh, the, uh, the place where Jews can say, that's the kind of Israel I want to support. It may not be there now, but that's in principle the position I'm comfortable with. And I, I suppose what I'm saying is that Labour, when it was a big, bulky opposition party, was that sentiment in institutional form, in concrete form, you could say, I, yes, to your liberal, non-Israel supporting friend, I too don't like Bibi, I'm for the other guy who's the opposition. The problem with it being so fragmented is there isn't another guy. You know, there's nobody who cuts through. There's no name that's known outside. Mm -hmm. Back in the 80s or 90s, let's say take the 90s, people knew, you know, people who followed politics knew there was a horse race between Sharon, Sharon Netanyahu on one side and the Perez Rabin on the other. These were internationally known names. Now, Bibi is the only name that is known outside the country. It is just one person. The fact that he has been there so long, 25 plus years, uh, has an effect uh, in terms of just, it's a, it's a tool, it's a tree that's so tall that mm -hmm. nothing can grow in the shade, you know, in terms of profile outside. So you, of course, and people like you and me, we know the names of Yair Lapid and, you know, Meret. We know our Meretz from our Gesher or whatever, but most people do. don't. They, they knew before just these two tribes, mm -hmm. And they, you know, the, had iconic figures, Perez Rabin versus the other one, Sai Shamir, Sharon, Bibi. And it was very easy then because you could say as an outsider, I don't dislike the country. I just prefer the blue team to the red team in American terms. Mm -hmm. Now there is kind of no blue team on the field 
in terms of how it's seen abroad. And that 13% figure conveys the idea that it's now a fringe. And it's more uncomfortable for pro-Israel people to say, I love Israel, I identify with this little fringe that is so marginal now in Israeli life. But but it's not such a fringe and marginal. I mean, to, in the beginning of this huge election cycle that is never ending, Benny Gantz, right, who represented the center left, had 35 mandates, right? So it's not a yeah. fringe. It just happened to be right now, in this point where we're sitting, it's it's shattered. It's completely, you know, it doesn't have, as you say, it doesn't have one leader. I don't think that will change. As I told you a week or two ago, our deadline for that is February 4th. That's next week uh, for the list to and for it to be clear who, who's running with who. Um, so I don't think that that'll change. But the question... Well, I was just going to say on that, I mean, so Benny Gantz, for, as an example, it's harder to identify with that because when annexation was in the air, he was basically for it. Yeah. And so that old message which says, you know, one side wants to make peace, land for mm. peace, compromise, territorial compromise. I know why the idea is discredited, you explained it, but it means there's. it's just the, the old polarity which said one mm. side is, you know, arguing strongly for territorial compromise, the other not. That argument isn't framed that way but, anymore. Uh, but we should make the point that Benny Gantz, basically what he did and what the Blue and White Party did was go to Washington sort of behind the back of, of Benjamin Netanyahu and say to Jared Kushner at the time, the president's advisor, don't go for the annexation. Don't do that. I, I don't think they were for the annexation. They may, they may have not said certain things publicly, and, and Benny Gantz made it a point not to say the words Palestinian state publicly. Right. But he wasn't for annexation. I thought in his uh, public didn't... statements at the time of the government being formed, he signed on for that in principle. Right. I, I know completely behind the scenes uh, working against it, but there wasn't the in principle sort of peacenik objection to that idea. Anyway, but it brings to mind a question I've been wanting to ask you, which is in the absence of that formal sort of block that's pushing for what used to explain the sort of peace camp or define rather the peace camp in Israel. What is the distinction between the parties that are jostling for power now? So I'm watching from afar, you know, it's Bibi and everyone tells me it's going to be him or Gidon Saar, Naftali Bennett. Is that an argument between right and more right rather than an argument between left and right? Fifty shades of right. <laughs> um, look, I think it's important to, to answer that question. We need to first look at, I mean, was, uh, we were talking about what is the left, what's left of the left, right? And what happened to Israeli left? But what happened to the Israeli right? What happened to the Likud that stood for certain values, certain clear values? And today is, I think it's easier to think of it what happened to the Republican Party under Trump, right? It became Netanyahu's party, right? And when Netanyahu uh, who used to talk about the importance of the independence of the legal system and the judiciary, et cetera, et cetera, right, says basically what happened to me is that I'm being persecuted by these, by the attorney general and the state's prosecutors and the investigators from the police. And they all colluded to fabricate a case against me, three cases actually against me. That is the, that has become, this is kind of deep state stuff, right? This has become the main uh, argument of the ruling party in the country. Everyone who follows Netanyahu believes it to a certain degree that this is true. And then you, you have to ask yourself, so what is the difference, right? What, what does the Likud stand for? And, and exactly this is where Gideon Saul comes in and says, wait a minute, I am I'm the real Likud, right? I am the, if you will, the Republican establishment that will uh, take with me the people who still believe in the rights values. Now, when you ask me vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, of course, Gidon Saar is more to the right than Netanyahu is. Look at Netanyahu's record. He uh, uh, shelved the annexation. 
He did speak about Palestinians, said he agreed to the partition plan in the Trump deal. Of course, we know that the Trump deal eventually would not have led to a Palestinian state, but it did have a Palestinian state in the in the actual accords, right? 70%, not 90 plus like Eud or uh, Barak would give them or, or Eud or not, but it did have that. And to, he doesn't uh, uh, advocate extensive uh, building in the settlements, etc. So Gideon Sal could actually say, wait a minute, I'm more on the right than he is. I voted against this engagement. I'm an annexationist, etc., etc. But the big difference, and this comes to your question, is the rule of law. And, and Gideon Sal saying, wait a minute, the, the importance of the judicial system in Israel is something we should talk about, especially if he took Benny Begin with him, right? We would just maybe remind people that Menachem Begin, I think after the Supreme Court uh, decided against his will, said, yes, shoftim Yerushalayim, there are judges in Jerusalem. The, the independence of the judicial system was very important for him. So that is one thing that Gideon Sal is standing on. He's saying, I'm not going to let Netanyahu uh, um, write in a law that will cancel his, uh, his trial or try and delay his trial or try and circumvent the Supreme Court. All of these things we are not, we are not part of. Uh, so that would be a big difference. It is not vis a vis the Palestinian issue because, again, as I say, it is, and I know it might be difficult to hear for people who made this their whole mission in life, but right now it isn't the most urgent uh, thing on the Israeli agenda. It is this question of of um of the rule of law yeah no i can uh, the, i have always one of my favorite lines that line the yeshof timbi Yerushalayim, and it's um it's uh, there are judges in jerusalem it goes to a really important difference i think it may may mean people around the world who watch the election if it happens and if Bibi were to lose i could picture them thinking this is great it's the end of netanyahuism and then being really disappointed when actually what they get is right-wing nationalism minus the sleaze but otherwise it's the same thing um that election the election we're going to keep coming back to it obviously week after week and who knows month after month year after year because it is <laughs> it is the perennial of israeli life i thought we were um we should talk about coronavirus because a landmark was reached in this country this week and um in in the in, in a grim landmark which is 100,000 dead uh is the uk death toll um it's it's got it's headed above that figure already um within a couple of days it's now 107,000 104,000 the the figure is very high and um proportionally it means that the death rate per head the proportionate death rate is highest in Britain compared to anywhere else in the world. And, you know, you can imagine um, the sort of introspection this has prompted. I mean, not really at the political level. Boris Johnson made a statement saying he, you know, takes responsibility for the decisions and essentially his government did the best it could. And the reply to that obviously is, well, your best isn't good enough. It's an odd situation because it's going hand in hand with these these other numbers, which show Britain doing really well in terms of vaccination. And so there is this odd cognitive dissonance, this kind of disconnect, where on one side of your mouth, you want to say, this government have screwed this up terribly. Look at this terrible death toll um, and, and this unwanted record as being, you know, the highest proportion of death toll anywhere in the world. And on the other hand, you know, the uh, inoculation rate, very, very rapid, especially in comparison with Britain's European neighbours. And there's this standoff now going on between AstraZeneca, the makers of the so-called Oxford vaccine, uh, who are not giving enough uh, supply to the European Union, and they're angry that they haven't got what they want. Um, 
you know, it is this sort of disconnect. And the minute I look at that disconnect, I think of Israel, which is the same disconnect, surely, where you've got, on the one hand, amazing number of vaccination numbers, proportionally the biggest in the world, but also the infection rate still rising. Yeah, last week, I think we hit the uh, both marks. We were the most vaccinations per capita and the most new cases for, per capita. Um, there are a few things that are similar between our two countries. I mean, in the way that, first of all, we both have a national health service that I think could be helpful, especially with the, with the vaccination rollout. We both are countries that could close down their borders if need be. And Israel did do that in the very first stages of the coronavirus. I mean, the first case in, in Israel was found in February 28th. And they closed down every the whole country uh, March 12th, right? So that was a very speedy sort of reaction. I think uh, 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 the UK kind of fumbled the ball on that for a while Big in the time. beginning. Um, and, um, and so I was trying to be British and polite about that. So I said fumbled <laughs> the ball and not terribly failed. <laughs> yeah. um, but... but so the beginning of it was actually a very a very good beginning. But what happened again as this crisis became became a prolonged crisis, we're we're very good as Israelis coming together at a kind of short six day war thing, but not in a very prolonged crisis. And the two things that became sort of our Achilles heel were first of all the the uh, and we talked about this last time the community that sort of did not adhere to restrictions, which was the Haredi community, right? So right now there are 40% of the cases and only 12% of the population. This is what is going on. This is a big, big story in Israel. And the second thing is the fact that Ben-Gurion Airport, the only opening of this country, remained opened, including uh, remained open, including in the fall, when there were tens of thousands of Israelis going to Dubai and back with no, absolutely no self-isolation, no restriction or nothing because of our Found, newly found peace with the UAE, and we didn't want to upset them, et cetera, et cetera. So we didn't declare them being a red state and let Israelis basically go and, and come back. And now we know that many of the variants that they brought with them are part of our of our uh, uh, problem here now. It strikes me as a new form of very subtle biological warfare between these two <laughs> countries, which is to exchange their tourists, saying, we're going to send you 10,000 infected travellers. Ah, but we've got 5,000 infected holidaymakers and sending them back and forth. And this is so much more effective than they ever managed to, any pain they inflicted <laughs> on each other in the in the age of war, in peace, you have a whole kind of new, new threat. I mean, that thing with the borders is a huge issue here and elsewhere, you know, in the United States as well, the, the sense that they, you know, now it looks crazy. Why on earth did you not just, you know, immediately seal off the borders in Britain? They're still not fully doing it. Finally, this week, they've announced, okay, 30 hotspots. I'm sure uh, Israel will be one of them. But most places, you know, if you're not on that list of hotspots, then you'll be able to still just walk through the front door. And it does seem so uh, daft to use a Britishism to be doing that. Um, you know, really crazy. It's very interesting the point you make about the national system. I interviewed this week Laurie Garrett, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning writer on science and policy. Mm -hmm. And she made a really interesting point to me, which was that, you know, America was always in a worse position, because unusually, it began uh, it's one of the few countries that didn't begin with a top down national health set up. Yep. Uh, instead, it's, it's a system that's grown up from the sort of bottom up, uh, where it can vary from county to county, let alone state to state. Um, and the result is, is a patchwork of different rules and how difficult. And, you know, it is quite true that Britain with its National Health Service since 1948, Israel really from uh, from the from the start having something, you know, not totally dissimilar, 
it has mean there were some advantages there. I, I feel as if Britain did fumble the ball. It could have. It's an island, for heaven's sake. It really yeah. could have sealed itself off. Uh, Israel has that particular advantage, which, as I, as I understand it, really just one main entry point in the form of Ben-Gurion. Right. So these two countries had kind of natural advantages. And certainly from the British point of view, I feel it did, you know, it kind of messed them up. You know, I'm curious about what thing. Every time I kind of listen to what is happening uh, in Britain, and I, I kind of remember when you talked about that uh, the, that grim number, the 100,000 deaths. I remember sometime in April, someone said that 20,000 deaths would be a good outcome. And I, we were shocked by this, but you have passed 20,000 uh, by, by, by a mile. It's just, it's really shocking. And I think one, one thing that I, I, I always wanted to ask you is what is, what does the opposition do? I mean, does Keir Starmer, head of labor, did he, does he attack the government? Is there, or is it sort of a polite, we're during, we're in a war situation, a warlike situation. We're not going to, going to do anything about it. What is no, I, it's, it's raised a really interesting question for opposition politicians. And he decided very early on, remember, he arrived as the new Labour leader mm-hmm. um, uh, in the midst of this pandemic. So in April, he had to give his victory speech just via Zoom. You know, he's not been able to be a kind of regular normal leader. No, he decided the strategy would be constructive opposition. We're not going to do opposition for opposition's sake. And so very often when they announce the government announced new rules on lockdown or mask wearing, straight away he's up to say, yes, I agree. I support the government. The difference is that what he's and you know he this is going to be helpful for him long term is at several key moments he suggested a different path. For example, in September he said we've got to go for a circuit breaking, not a second lockdown. And uh, uh, Boris Johnson dismissed him and said that was ridiculous. Uh, and uh, a few weeks later he ended up doing it. And so at each stage, actually, Keir Starmer can say. I've been supporting the government, but I have been in the right place three or four weeks before they were. So that's useful. But you get me on something interesting, which is the politics. And I think there's a fascinating question or a parallel here between the situation for Netanyahu and the situation for Boris Johnson, which is a question a commentator here wrote this week is, what do voters remember? Do they only remember the end of the story? Or this was a piece by Tom McTague in The Atlantic. Do they only remember the end of the story or the whole story throughout. Now, if the story ends in both places, Israel and here, with a successful mass vaccination that was faster than any of their neighbours, maybe fastest in the world, maybe that's that's the end of the movie and everyone stands up and cheers. Or do they remember all the pain and agony um, during, you know, that got you there and all the terrible mistakes. And for Boris Johnson, his whole, you know, political future may hinge on that, but, you know, big deeper than that, in a way, how Britain thinks about this experience. Is it a five-year war that we won or is it a five-year war of pain and grief and mourning? And I know you and I both are big fans of Aaron Sorkin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Aaron Sorkin apparently holds the view that the last 15 minutes of any movie <laughs> is the crucial 15 minutes because... That determines whether people, how they feel about the movie. Did they like it or not? And we're, you know, we're, I don't know whether we're in the last 15 minutes, but vaccination is a big part of that. I really hope we are. Me too. <laughs> I really hope we are. That reminded me that when he brought uh, Rob Reiner, the American president, it was a 450-page script. And Rob Reiner said, take out all the politics, just leave me the romance. And he took out all the politics, and that was West Wing. 
The American President is not a bad film, by the way. I like quite, that film. Yeah, not bad. I know, I know you're a bit of a sap. I would know you. Yeah, like no, that I film. love, well. You, it's a good you, movie. You, it's a good one movie. One of my favorite things is presidents on screen. And because, you know, I, I'm, I, it's a sort of genre I love. But the American President is a bit sappy, but you're absolutely, that's right. It, it's, it prompted the West Wing. So, what is your best, best, best president on screen? Ah, no, when I say presidential screen, I mean sort of presidential stories on screen. And so I, you know, I it was on, on here on TV the other day. I will watch all the president's men okay. anytime. If I just land in that, you know, it's, it's three quarters of the way through, I will watch it to the end. That's a particular category of movies. Um, I think we have to nominate, do we not, our uh, chutzpah and mensch award winners this week, um, because it is uh, the you know act of generosity that we perform. So you do the mensch. Okay, so um, mensch of the week. I think um, I'm going to go with the one that is slightly serious, but I think he deserves it, and that is, and maybe we'll do that. We'll we'll do this every other week. Uh, who knows? But President Joe Biden um, did something important this week. It was on uh, January the 27th, Holocaust Memorial Day, um, the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. And it falls to politicians all over the world to mark that moment. And, you know, Joe Biden issued a statement this week that in a way, in any normal circumstances, would have been just boilerplate and normal, unremarkable. Uh, And the key thing in it was that this statement mentioned in the first sentence uh, Jews and anti-Semitism uh, as part, a central part of the Holocaust. And as I say, you wouldn't think that is news, except this time four years ago, Holocaust Memorial Day, when there was a new president, Donald Trump, he managed to issue a statement that didn't mention either Jews or anti-Semitism and that somehow made uh, the blended in the Holocaust as if it was just, you know, we regret all the losses of the Second World War or something. That was the uh, language. And so Joe Biden, just for getting that right and reminding us uh, of the importance of the day, but also how an American president should behave uh, and speaking um, with some kind of gravity about that event, uh, I thought he would be a winning, a deserving winner as our nominated mensch for this week and the chutzpah chutzpah award of the week would you want to nominate someone well you touched on it a tiny bit when we were when you mentioned uh the haredim the ultra orthodox in israel actually in lots of places and you mentioned that in in israel the infection rate among ultra orthodox jews is 40 percent uh, or they account for 40 percent rather of the infections and only 12 percent of the population this is, as I say, a phenomenon in Jewish communities around the world, in New York, and even here in London. There was controversy this week in London where it emerged that a wedding, indoor wedding celebration had happened in an uh, ultra-Orthodox school, uh, said to be 400 guests. I mean, this is at a time when people are not even going to see their own elderly parents indoors. Nobody is seeing anybody. And so the 400 uh, gathering, you know, distressed people a lot. Uh, it's led to these sort of standoff scenes uh, with the police in Israel trying to uh, uh, enforce the rules and these standoffs. And people out here have been very shocked by these images of burnt-out buses and Israeli police firing in the air, etc. And I saw that one Haredi activist uh, tweeted that these scenes of rioting, etc., were proof that the ultra-Orthodox schools have to keep on 
uh, staying open, even though every other school is closed. Because if they don't, uh, and the their young people are don't have a place to go, then of course they're going to ro- go out onto the streets, and there'll be trouble. So, all this trouble that we're causing is an argument for why you have to let us carry on causing more trouble, right. so that we yeah. won't cause more trouble. I mean, it is yes. just so circular. Uh, the logic, keep our schools open so that we can get our kids off the streets, otherwise they'll riot. I think that kind of logic uh, is is chutzpah almost in the purest sense. And um, and so the Haredi spokesman who came up with that, I think, um, could get a chutzpah award, perhaps along with the organisers of that huge uh, Hasidic wedding in Netanyahu, where I've also seen pictures of, again, hundreds of people indoors. I mean, it is a big problem. It is. I'm going to add, because we, we did mensch chutzpah, and now we're just going to, a little bit of the mensch, just a little bit, because uh, I did speak, do you know uh, Yuda Meshi Zahav? I did speak to him this week. He's a Haredi who heads the emergency response organization in Israel. He's very well known in this country. He lost his mother and brother in the same month to coronavirus. And while he was sitting shiva on his mother, he lost his father as well. This is really like the story of Job. And he was, be- he was on television. I spoke to him. He's begging the Haredi community, please wake up. This is something that you must realize, um, that, that we have to wake up and we have to, as a community, be more responsible. Um, yeah, that's a deserving mensch. I'm with you on that. I, I second I, I that mensch so. nomination. <laughs> I think so, too. I, I'm, we really get kudos to us for ending on fluffy uh, topics, fun and fluffy topics. Very good. good no, we will, we will forward those to the Mention Chutzpah Committee, who <laughs> meet in Stockholm, I think, and uh, they, we will send them with all our signatures and seals formally ratified and we'll wait we'll await their decision it's an it's an honor it's an honor <laughs> just to be nominated or dishonor or yes, dishonor just to be nominated depends on your your vantage point um jonathan thank you it was always a pleasure talking to you um we want to thank rom attic at our podcast division and yir bashan and irad eshel for original music and the or friedman our uh, wonderful editor yeah so if you are listening to this and you've enjoyed it then please do make sure you review the episode and perhaps give us even a five star rating we love that because that really helps uh, get this uh, podcast in front of more people and crucially you've got to hit the button that says subscribe because if you do that then unholy will land in your podcast feed automatically without even the need for human or even divine <laughs> your need jonathan we'll meet next week till then bye-bye bye-bye shalom bye-bye